Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the Old Testament book of Nahum. Nahum is in the portion of the Bible that we call the Minor Prophets. Some people call it the writings of the 12 because there are 12 Old Testament books in this portion of Scripture. We call them Minor Prophets, of course, because they are shorter in length, not because they are of lesser importance than any other book of the Bible. Nahum is only three chapters in length and can be easily read in a matter of just a few minutes. Uh, the name of the author, Nahum, means consolation or comforter, but the message that he's bringing to its intended recipient is anything but comforting. It is a message of coming judgment to the nation of Assyria, specifically to their capital city, the city of Nineveh. So the theme of all three chapters is the judgment and destruction of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great city, in fact, the largest city of the ancient world. Remember Jonah in his prophecy said it was three days journey by foot across it. It had uh, walls that were wide enough for three chariots to roll side by side. It had walls that were 100 feet tall. It had a 60 foot moat. It was full of gold and artifacts and things they had stolen from other kingdoms. And it was a city that was built with blood money. The Assyrians were incredibly vicious and cruel and taskmasters and the Lord takes note of that, as we'll see today. Well, speaking of Jonah, you may think, well, if I remember the book of Jonah correctly, the Ninevites repented of their sin and God withheld his judgment. He did, but that was over 100 years before the book of Nahum. A new generation had come on the scene and repeated their forefathers' sins. The revival was real, but it was very short-lived. Now, it has been our habit in this series, we will begin with a brief overview of the entire book and then settle in for one pericope for our study this morning. We provided for you an outline, which will be on the screen and hard copies available as you entered and will be available online the rest of the week. Outlines, as you know, are, are somewhat subjective. Everybody's outline probably would look a little bit different, but I've broken Nahum down into three primary points based on its three chapters, and each point has subpoints. And it might be helpful for us to just start here in chapter 1 and walk our way through and see the major themes of the book of Nahum. So in chapter 1, we see that there are some predictions made. God says he's about to do something. Um, the most specific of these predictions is in verse 8. It says, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. Now in verse 1, he directs this prophecy to the city of Nineveh. And so he says, I'm going to destroy Nineveh with water. And in verses 1 through 8 here in chapter 1, he talks about why he's going to do that. It's because of his nature, who he is and what he's like. In verses 9 through 15, he talks about the futility of resisting him because he, his power will be on display in this judgment. Now, secular history tells us just as God predicted, he would destroy Nineveh with a flood, he did. Now, Nineveh was in modern-day Iraq. It was on the eastern shore of the Tigris River, right across today from what is the city of Mosul, which we all heard about a lot during the Iraq War. Um, they felt that their city was impenetrable. 
It was protected on one side by the river. It had canals cut into it. It had fresh water. It had incredible fortifications, and it was armed to the teeth. And so they felt like none of their enemies could ever penetrate those walls. But God, in his sovereignty, as he often does, shows man the futility of his resistance. And so in the year 612, he sent a mighty flood down the Tigris River, and it wiped away the foundations of those walls, and a breach in the wall occurred, and the enemies of Assyria, the Medes and Scythians and Babylonian combined armies, walked right through and totally destroyed the city. They took all the spoils that they had been accumulating from others over the years. And when archaeologists finally rediscovered Nineveh in the 1800s, they found not one piece of silver or gold. They had taken everything, and the city was utterly ruined, which, by the way, is predicted in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that their accumulated wealth will be lost and verses 11 through 13, that their influence and even memory would be erased for many years, and it was. In chapter 3, we see a pronouncement made, and I think it's uh, one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible. It says this, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I think of the verse in the New Testament, Paul writes that if God is for us, who can be against us? Most of us have quoted that verse in times of tragedy, that no matter what happens, we know that God's on our side. Well, the opposite of that is also true. If God is against us, who can be for us? Probably the most frightening position any of us could be in is to be an enemy of God, and God declares Nineveh his enemy. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Why was God so angry with Nineveh? Well, he tells us in chapter 3, three primary sins. Number one is their violence. Verses 1 through 3 talks about their bloodthirsty nature, their cruelty. Secular history and archaeology tells us that they boasted often about their ability to torture people. Now, I started to read a paragraph from a book I found that describes some of their tactics, but I remember there'd be children here today. It is so gruesome that it prevents me from even speaking of it. But just know it's the worst of the worst. Their cruelty was, made them infamous throughout the ancient world, the world and, and the name of Nineveh was a byword for cruelty. Their religion was sorcery. They practiced magic. And there were sexual sins associated with these practices. And unbelievably, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 19, we find that where this led them was a feminization of their men, even in their military. There was a perversion of the natural order. The summary of their sins is found in Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. You might want to mark that in your Bible. He says, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? They were so wicked, so cruel, so evil, that when the news came to their neighbors that their walls had been breached, there would be spontaneous applause. Everyone would agree that God was just and right for destroying the nation of Assyria. Their demise is so thorough that the other nations would rejoice. Well, that's the book of Nahum. Let's back up now to our text this morning. 
which is the first 15 verses of Nahum, the entire first chapter. Let's read it now. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Well, that tells us that Nahum was from Elko, but we don't know where Elko was, so it doesn't help us too much. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved in his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked, the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and listening to his word. Now, so far in our study of the minor prophets, the prophets we've studied are Hosea, Joel, and Micah. In each of those books, God has called his chosen people, Israel, to repent of their sin. And the most specific sin that he addresses is the sin of idolatry. Remember that the first two commandments that God gave Israel through Moses, have no other gods before me and make no graven image. God detested idolatry and he still does. But the nation of Israel and Judah, remember they had divided by now into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, by differing degrees still obeyed these commandments. And it led to two catastrophic events. In the northern kingdom, it led to their complete destruction. All ten tribes dispersed to the four winds of the world. And over a hundred years later, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom. But the book of Nahum is different in many ways than the other 11 minor prophets. It is not directed to Israel or even Judah, but to the enemies of God, namely the Assyrians, specifically the capital city of Nineveh. Just because God uses wicked people to accomplish his will, as he did with Assyria, punishing Judah and Israel, does not mean that those nations and individuals are guiltless before God. 
See, God is so sovereign that he can use even sinful people and their sinful deeds for his glory. Paul seemed to say something like that in the New Testament when he said all things work together for good for those that love him. All things mean all things. It, it means even sin. Now God is not endorsing sin or encouraging sin and he's not saying he's not going to punish that sin. He's just so sovereign he can use those sins for his glory. And in the New Testament, I thought this week of a very specific passage that proves that. So on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you remember the Holy Spirit had come in power and Peter stood up to preach there to Jerusalem to the very people who just weeks earlier had crucified the Savior. And this is what he said. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over, listen to this, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. So here we have the divine tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. In one sense, God crucified Jesus. The Old Testament says it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was his plan of redemption. But on the other hand, he used the means of sinful men and their desire to silence Jesus and their murderous intent to carry it out. And so he says, this man delivered over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. He doesn't acquit them just because it was God's plan. So this morning, the title of the message is The Essence of Idolatry. And I hope you'll see the similarities between the two. With all these messages on idolatry this summer, I expect the temptation is going to be for we Christians to sort of tisk tisk the Israelites and the Judeans and say, Boy, idolatry is a terrible sin. I'm so glad we don't do it. But I hope you'll see this morning that though we may not carve stone figurines and forge metal statues and sacrifice animals and pray to them, that the essence of idolatry, that is the characteristics of idolatry, are all around us today in our own culture. You see, idolatry is not just about worshiping inanimate statues and figurines. It is believing things about the true God that are not true. Let me say it again. The essence of idolatry is believing things about the true God that are not true. And our friends and neighbors right here in Keller believe some things about God that are not true. Let me give you three examples. Many of our neighbors and friends who would call themselves theists, that is they believe God exists, believe that that God is impersonal and distant. This is called deism. It's the idea that I can look around creation and say, somebody had to do this. There's evidence of design, right? There's order, there's laws of physics. I know I didn't do it. I don't think any other human did it. So there must be someone or something behind it. If you want to call it God, that's okay with them. But they would say that that God who created the universe is impersonal. He doesn't want to have a relationship with us. In fact, he kind of wound us up like a child's toy and walked away and could care less about what happens. That's not the God of the Bible, so that makes that point of view idolatrous. Another thing people believe that isn't true about the true God is that he's capricious, that he's a lot like us. He changes with the wind. His emotions are up and down. One day he hates sin, other days he laughs at it. We put that upon God because we know that's who we are. 
that's not who God is, and so that's idolatry. But I think the most harmful misunderstanding and indeed idolatrous lie about the true God is that he is harmless. So many people believe that God is like a big Santa Claus in the sky who can be summoned and dismissed like a genie in the bottle. I'm late for work and I'm in a traffic jam. I summon the genie and say, Lord, open up an exit. I've got a major exam at college and I haven't studied enough. Lord, let me learn by osmosis. So we're always beckoning God as if he's a puppet on the string. And we think that he's like an old grandfather doting upon us, always giving us money and candy and never punishing us. Helpless, harmless, laughable. That's idolatry. And so here in Nahum chapter 1, God shows us what he's really like. And there's three words that we want to use today to describe what God is truly like. The title of the message is the essence of idolatry. But really what I'm trying to show you is what the true character of God is. And number one, the true God, according to verses 2 through 6, the true God is dangerous. Listen to some of the words that Nahum uses to describe God's character here in chapter 1. Avenging, fierce, wrathful, jealous, powerful, just, irresistible. Does that sound like Santa Claus to you? <laughs> That's God. So let's just walk through four or five of these characteristic words and go a little deeper in each of them. Uh, let's start with the word jealous. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? Now, on first blush, that may sound like a negative thing to you because what we understand about jealousy is probably from our childhood. You remember the kid that had his first girlfriend in eighth grade and he wanted to fight every boy that spoke to her in the cafeteria at the flagpole at 301? <laughs> and we say, oh, he's jealous, right? And so we put that on God and we think that's how God is like. But God is jealous and he has the right to be unlike the eighth grader. Because God has no peers and no rivals. Our motto here at First Baptist Keller that you men will find on your socks, I think, is soli deo gloria, which means all for the glory of God. But I want you to know something. It's not just our church that has that motto. That's God's motto for himself. God does everything he does for his own glory. And you think, well, that's sort of self-centered. It would be wrong for God not to be self-centered because everything less than him is inferior and unworthy of his attention. That's what it means that he's a jealous God. He is jealous for his own name or his own glory. It means the same thing. And he's also powerful enough to enforce that jealousy. In fact, theologians say he is omnipotent, which means he's able to accomplish all of his holy will the description that I just read, when God comes down to judge man, the earth is upheaved in his presence, the world and all of its inhabitants. Who can stand before his indignation? This is God in his omnipotence. And by the way, he is just to punish sin. He is furious with his enemies, and his enemies are those who disobey. He hates and must punish sin. That's what I mean that he's different than us. We're capricious towards sin, depending on what sort of day we had at the office. 
We may punish our children's sin or we may laugh at it. God does not laugh at sin. He hates sin and must punish it all the time. And he knows about all of our sin, which is bad news for us. He's omnipresent and he's omniscient. He knows all things at once. And verse 3 here, chapter 1 says, He will never leave the guilty unpunished. And dads, let's, let's talk, okay? We don't measure up here, do we? There are times where we leave the guilty unpunished with our children. And we do that for a number of reasons. I, at least I do. Two, two of the primary reasons I leave the guilty unpunished at my house sometime is because I'm fatigued. Right? I know I should probably address this, but I'm worn out. And so I'm going to save it for another day, and I don't. But I suspect, and some of my kids are here, I will be careful. <laughs> I suspect one of the reasons I don't always punish those who deserve it is I'm not omniscient. I don't know about all that they do. My older brother was here in the first service, and my parents were sitting right there in front of him. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? There are times where we weren't punished because our parents are not omniscient. And to this day, they don't know all the things that we did. <laughs> and we're going to leave it that way. God's neither of those things. God never doesn't punish sin out of fatigue because he's God. He doesn't get tired. And he never doesn't punish sin because he doesn't know about it. Because he's God. And he knows all things. And, and then the last word I'd point to your attention is that he is irresistible. Now I'm not getting into deep soteriology here. What I mean by irresistible is that it is futile to resist his judgment. God does not have competitors when it comes to his omnipotence. Nahum describes here a God who does whatever he pleases. So the true God is dangerous. Secondly, the true God, though, is good. Verse 7 says, the Lord is good. See, there's a widespread misunderstanding that God cannot be both dangerous and good simultaneously. That if he's dangerous, he's not good, and if he's good, he's not dangerous. That is nonsense. God is dangerous, that is, he's to be feared, but he's also good, which means he always does what is right. Because his is the standard of all goodness. Romans 9 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? See, we want to stand in judgment over God. We want to see what's going on in the world and say, a good God would not do this or allow it. But we're not the standard of goodness. He is. And this Father's Day, I want us to walk through these verses, particularly verse 7, and we'll understand what a good father is like. A good father, according to verse 7b, is a defender of his own. He says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who takes refuge in him. In the first service, Brother Dan Trantham prayed before I preached, and he prayed a very beautiful prayer. And he said, Lord, I pray you'd raise up dads in our church who have a backbone. Amen? Who will protect our kids 
from the evil that is all around us and the danger that is all around us. Well, the Bible says God's a good father. And part of being a good father, man, is that you are a defender of your own. Your children can come to you and expect protection. Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be moved, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake and the swelling thereof. He's good, and he's a defender of his own. Secondly, he's merciful. Verse 7c says, he cares about those who take refuge in him. There are many passages that speak of God as a refuge. Think of David. When he thought of the nature of God, he took pen in hand, he wrote the 23rd Psalm. He viewed God as his protector and his provider. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He said, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil. Why? Because he's with me. Thy rod and thy staff they, they comfort me. That is God. He's merciful. God, he's a protector. He's a provider. Think of the Lord Jesus in the midst of his busyness in his three and a half year earthly ministry. How many times he looked out over the throngs of people following him and was moved with compassion because they were hungry, or tired. He's merciful. David looked to him for restoration, which is a third quality of a good father. He's a restorer. There are men in this church who are fathers who need to seek restoration with your family and with your adult children. It's been years since you spoke and there's grudges and you might not even remember what it was about originally. But as a Christian dad, you need to seek restoration. There's a beautiful illustration of this in the New Testament. We call it the story of the prodigal son, right? And if you think one of your adult children has wronged you, listen to what this kid did. There were two boys in the family. They had a wealthy father. And one of them was so wicked, so self-willed. He went to his dad and he said, Dad, I know you're wealthy, but you look to be in pretty good health. And I can't wait till you die to get my hands on your money. I want it now. Can you imagine how hurtful something like that would be? I can't wait for you to die. But this father was so gracious, he fulfilled his son's wish. He gave him the money, knowing it was the worst thing for him. And he went off into a far country, the scripture says, and he wasted his life on wanton or sinful living. And when he used up all the money, his friends went away, and he found himself eating pig slop which would have been particularly outrageous to Jesus' Jewish audience. He said, here's what I'll do. The servants in my father's house have more than enough bread to eat. I'll go home and submit to him as an indentured slave, not as a son. At least I'll have something to eat. Scripture says the father saw him coming from afar. And he ran down the road and he embraced his son, and he said, Kill the fatted calf, put a robe upon his back, a ring upon his finger, for my son which was lost is found. Let's throw a party. And there was restoration, and there was reconciliation. And friends, that happens every time a sinner is saved. We clap 
when people are baptized here. And I will tell you, I didn't grow up in a church where you clapped. And it was very difficult for me for the first three or four years I was a member here. I didn't know what I should do. We didn't do that growing up. But I clap now. And I do so because the Bible says there is joy in heaven for even one soul that repents. We clap for a lot of silly things in this world. We ought to clap when people get saved, right? And so here, here he is, and he's talking about God being a restorer. He gives the example of the prodigal son. And in these 12 minor prophets, almost every one of them have some ink spilled on what I call the millennial kingdom. That there's coming a day when he's going to restore national Israel to prominence where Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule on his throne in Jerusalem and people are going to come from all over the world and Israel, which has been disdained for all this time, is suddenly going to be the epicenter of all of civilization. And he says, that day is coming. So God is a good father. He's a defender. He's merciful. He's a restorer. But one more point I want to make before we leave today is that the true God... The God of the Bible is thorough. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. He's speaking to Assyria. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. And then he turns his attention to Judah and he says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. Hear this, mark this. He is cut off, how? Completely. This is not just going to be a recession or a depression. This is not just going to be the end of the golden era of Assyria. This is the end of Assyria, period. And in 612, this nation that had been the mightiest on earth ceased to exist. And this city of Nineveh, which was the greatest on planet earth at the time, was thoroughly forgotten until the 1800s, not that long ago, when an archaeologist stumbled upon it. And you can go there today and see those ruins of the city of Nineveh. God does what he says he's going to do, and he's thorough about it. And the, the two things that God does thoroughly with the same action, isn't that interesting? With the same judgment, he both blesses Israel and destroys Nineveh. And the two things he does thoroughly is that he destroys his enemies and he blesses his own. That's why we don't have to fear the tribulation. And we don't have to fear the coming judgment because the same judgment in which he's going to destroy his enemies, he's going to bless his people. And I'm reminded that there are only two groups of people in the world. <laughs> no matter what the politicians tell you, no matter what the news media tells you, they want us to be divided into 200 different segments, identity groups, one pitted against the other. In God's economy, in all of humanity, there are two groups of people, the lost and the saved. Now, they're called by different names. In the New Testament, they're called the goats and the sheep. They're called the redeemed and the enslaved. But whatever you want to call them, what it comes down to, it's the two groups of people are those the Lord is for 
and those the Lord is against. And you say, well, that's not true, Pastor. God's not against anybody. If you believe that, you believe an idolatrous lie. Because I just read to you, Nahum 1, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 12, 30. You're either for me or against me. God has enemies. And one day he's going to destroy all of his enemies. Well, how do you become an enemy of God? Through sin and disobedience. And you know how many people are sinful and disobedient? Every one of us. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God says here's how he reacts to that. Three chapters later in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The very thing the Assyrians received is what we deserve and what every person deserves for their sin. You say, well, wait a second, Pastor. Look, we're not Nineveh. We don't pile up corpses and brag about it. We don't skin people alive and nail them to the wall like they did. We don't kill babies in the street like they do. Well, the Bible says that God gave Israel ten commandments, and they didn't keep one of them. See how you do. The Bible says, thou shalt not lie. You ever told a lie? If the answer is yes, then you're a liar. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, well, I've never cheated on my wife. The Bible says, if a man that looks upon a woman to lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery. So that makes you an adulterer. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. The scripture says, if you have unjust sin in your heart against someone, you've committed murder. See, we all are guilty and we deserve God's wrath and he hates sin, and he must punish sin. That's the bad news. But remember, there's good news along with this bad news that he is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. And the day of trouble, like none other, is when you recognize you're a sinner. And when you recognize you're a sinner, the only thing that you should do is run to Jesus. It says he knows those who take refuge in him. That's what it means to believe on Christ is to take refuge in his provision. And the provision that he's made is the cross. If you think God doesn't have enemies and if you think that God doesn't hate sin, go back and read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest torture devices man has ever conceived in his wicked heart. It was designed to prolong agony and suffering and ultimately always ended in death. God sent Jesus to die, not a quiet death in his 90s. He sent Jesus to die in the prime of life through a torturous death. Not because Jesus had done anything wrong, he hadn't, but because that's what our sins deserved. See, right here in Nahum, we see the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus came to die in the place of sinners. And that he receives all who take refuge in him. And friend, if you're here today and you find yourself an enemy of God. And by the way, if you haven't bowed your knee to Christ, that is exactly the category you're in. 
He invites you to run to him for shelter, for coverage, for protection. He is a very present help in time of trouble. For those who have believed on Jesus and repented of sin and bowed their knee to his lordship, we don't have to fear his wrath, his condemnation. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are sheltered in him. We are protected from God's wrath. What about you? Did you notice how closely our own nation sinned parallel to that of Assyria? God hasn't changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it may very well be that some of the things that happened to this nation may happen in our lifetime. But we don't have to fear because we know the Lord. We are his children. He is our father. We know that he is dangerous, but he is good. He is merciful and he's slow to anger. Let's pray and thank him for that glorious truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And these are sobering words that I've read. And it's quiet in this room now, Lord, as we think about the, the truth. Because probably just by virtue of being around it so much, maybe some of us have adopted some of the idolatrous attitudes and thoughts about the true God. Maybe we think, well, he, he created us, but he doesn't really care how we live or talk or think. We've seen today, Lord, that's not true. You're omniscient. You know all things and you punish all sin. Maybe there's someone here that thinks that, well, God is, is learning right along with us, that, that he's like us. He's capricious and he changes and he, he's just a big Santa Claus in the sky. And Lord, we, we've seen today that's not true. We can't summons and dismiss him like a genie in the bottle. He's God and we're not. He's a jealous God. He protects his good name and his glory. Father, I pray all of us would remember that he's a merciful, good God. That even though he punishes sin, he has made a way that we don't have to receive that punishment. He, he loved us so much, according to John 3, 16, that he sent his only son into the world to die in our place. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be spared. They'll be sheltered from. They will be excluded from his wrath that is to come. Lord, I thank you for so many hundreds in this room who know Christ as Lord and Savior, whose heaven is their eternal home. But Lord, if there's even one here today that knows you not, I pray that they would run to Jesus before it's everlasting too late. You tell us there's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray that they would confess that while they're here and alive, that will result in salvation before it's everlasting too late. Lord, we know you're a God who forgives and restores. I pray you would do that multiplied times over here today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.